Welcome to Robin Ince and Josie Long's Book Shambles, episode, I don't even know, eight, four, six. Yeah. And those were some numbers. Oh, you're going to segue? And we're also today... Um, uh, Joined by number specialist and, and broadcaster, broadcaster and biographer, Alex Bellos. We uh, um, we really like calling everyone a broadcaster. You are a broadcaster. Yeah. You've broadcast with me before, haven't you? Yes, I have. But the only way I could not be a broadcaster is if I haven't done it before and I'm silent all the way through. Mm, even then, though, we would see you as like a silent disco, the silent... Okay, have you ever been to the silent broadcaster disco? You can choose different... I, I actually eventually went with Richard Dimbleby and the Queen's Coronation. I was just dancing to that on my headphones, but someone else was dancing to uh, DLT doing snooker on the radio. So they, they can all listen to different broadcasters and disco. Niche! So, Alex, this is this is obviously our football and mathematics special. Brilliant. We know, I know it's been said many times before, but there is a beautiful, the delightful thing, which is Alex writes books about mathematics. He's a mathematician, uh, but his first ever book was uh, The Autobiography of Pele. Oh, that was the, the second book. Oh, was it? Did yes, was it? I did the first book called Futebol, or Futebol, depending on which part of Brazil you're from, which was... Um, Brazilian football, or Brazil seen through Brazilian football, and as a result of that, I got the um, the Pele gig. And you were yeah. his ghostwriter. I was his ghostwriter. Yeah, yeah. And did you? Yeah. What did you do about all the cocaine in that? What? Pele. Pele. Who am I confusing? You're me thinking with? of Diego and Maradona, oh, aren't you? I am. <laughs> I'm not saying. <laughs> so what, would you know the nice thing about your racism is it covers the whole of South America. No, I think it's more my willful lack of knowledge about football is what it is. Although I can give you my football opinions. So did I've you did you add some cocaine to Pele's life story? Because that's never been covered before. No, I, Josie I, I, obviously oh God, knows I'm something. I'm so sorry to to be that clueless right out of the traps. No, I, I think he of, of his vices. <laughs> I think he was promiscuous but I don't think oh. there's any evidence of drug taking How did you deal with his vices <laughs> in the book? Did you play him down? Did you like spin him up? Well when you're a ghostwriter essentially what you are you're kind of carer in lots of ways <laughs> and you're protecting someone from themselves so you spend time with them and they tell you lots of anecdotes and some of them you know because if you are someone like Pele you've done things which are great anecdotes to your mates, but they're not great anecdotes for your book on sale at Christmas. You don't so, want to make children cry when they're trying to think about what an inspiring footballer you are. Yeah, yeah, or be a bit offensive. You know, also, you, you, I mean, the weird thing about writing a book about Pele um, is that you have to sort of get his voice, but his voice in English is kind of sort of my voice. So it's a weird sort of try, try, trying to get it right to tell the jokes that he says in the way that works in English, but that's still feels a bit, bit authentic. What is it for you? Did you, was there any process you went through beforehand, like reading ghost-written autobiographies? Someone like, I think, Hunter Davis. Uh, has, is it Hunter Davis who's written a, a Yeah, he a did. Few... Um, Gaza. And I think he's done a few, hasn't he? And there's, there's well, certain the people Beatles. who concentrate yeah. on, uh, have, have done a lot of ghostwriting. Did you study that at all to go, how is it that you basically, you remove yourself, but you remain there as the editorial process. And then also sometimes you're only given, some people only get about, about a day and then they have to write 300 pages about someone yeah. and go, I, oh, I've accidentally written as Alex when I should be writing as Pele. That's totally right. I would have loved to have read the whole, you know, genre of But I um, was called up and said, we need you to write Pele's autobiography. And the reason, well, it's kind of complicated reasons, but I had three days with him. So I was flown to Brazil, spent three days with him and then had two weeks to write it. So I didn't really have any time. But that's actually really liberating. And what I find, you know, most people who are writers, maybe, I mean, 
than when you're writing, even when you're a professional writer, it doesn't get easier. You still stare at the screen, you know, like, oh, I've got to say this in the best way possible. When you're ghostwriting, there's no pretense that you need to make it beautifully written. You just need, so it was actually quite liberating. And you can write a book in two weeks because you're only going to give it one draft. You get up in the morning, you go into your room and you're like, today I'm Pele 1962. And you just do, and I was basically did one year and two weeks of like maybe 14 important years. You're home and you just sit down and you just tell it and you you, you, you do get into it. And it's actually liberated because so you don't need to think, Pelly's not going to say, um, is that metaphor quite right? The first metaphor that comes, you just do it. You just go straight through it. Probably like, I, I can imagine if you're like a sports person, you're quite kind of quite straightforward in your thinking. So you'd be like, oh, cool. You made that sound like I was a bird, but I'm not a bird. I'm just a guy. Brilliant. Yeah. Maybe that's too patronising. And also, the, the, the thing with Pele is that he stopped playing football in 1976, and I interviewed him in 2006. So you can work out how many decades he hasn't played football. So essentially, what he's done in that time is perfect telling his old stories. So when you're seeing him, you mean someone who's brilliantly rehearsed in telling you everything that that you want to know. So it, it's it's almost if you had a computer thing that transcribed it into words, you could just <laughs> not do anything at all. Press. Play. It's like a that fun a, role play. I was going to say that, is a, that, but that is a really lovely thing. Is watching. There's Richard Feynman, who's who's one of my kind of you know well, fav, fav, one of my favourite physicists. But it goes beyond that. And um, there's a documentary that was made in uh, the north of England, whereas where uh, which is I think kind of late seventies, and he meets Fred Hoyle and stuff, and he tells a lot of the stories that he then tells a few years later on a Horizon special. And you see that his the stories have become a little bit sharper. <laughs> and some people say that they go, um, they go, oh, well, of course, the trouble with Feynman was, you know, he was just storytelling. He, you know, he 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 embossed a lot of stuff. He got, and you go, that's fine though. There's no reason. He's a great physicist. He doesn't have to make up that he won the Nobel Prize. He won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> he had a great mind. And the fact that he also thought I'm going to tell this story about my dad and I want to make it slightly better than the version I had before is is a beautiful thing. Yeah. To uh, nobody has the truth happen to them so well that they don't need to storytell a bit. Yeah. Because the, the, that's why stories are better than the truth. A lot. Well, of that's what stand up. You know, stand up yeah. is is filled with bits where there was a story I had. I once did at a storytellers' night where I said I'm going to stop every time there's an embellishment or a lie. And in fact, in doing that, I went, "There's no lies in here, but there are three stories that become one narrative." Yep. These three different things happen on a train, but it was much easier to rather than me going. Then there was another thing. There was quite a slight incident that happened on a train. Here's one major incident that happened on a train. It's actually three slight things. Don't tell anyone. Well, anyway, we've lifted the lid off stand up, so that'll be dead as narts now. Um, or like selective rememberings, or you know, you just cherry pick. You know, I had a three-hour conversation with a really odious man on a beach once, and then I chose three things he said, and that was the whole conversation that you tell. You're not going to also say, "And oh, for half an hour, he told me about lenses." Yeah, <laughs> like, no. he sounds good. What? So that was a good bit. <laughs> yeah, that was the only good bit. Oh, I was, I was talking with uh, a Dutchman the other day, and he said nothing much happened in Amsterdam. I said, "Yeah, but come on, a lot has actually." It was almost you know, apart from anything else, the the, the lenses. Uh, van uh, was was it Van Leeuwenhoek? Leeuwenhoek? Uh, van Leeuwenhoek, uh, probably. Um, uh, he, he did a lot of lens work. It was good stuff. Oh, nothing but lenses. So that's enough on the football because Josie, well, we discovered, is quite myself. football racist. <laughs> uh, the, uh... I could tell you my opinions about teams. Man United, too successful in the past. Ugly. Man City, you can't buy class. It's been a funny old month for Leicester and Bournemouth. There we go. The <laughs> no, it would reason... be such a lovely podcast if we had to talk about sport for an hour at a time. And we obviously... But you wouldn't sound as stupid as I think you think you might sound because sport is just, you know, football 
it's 22 people kicking a ball around. You just have to tell the story that you want to tell. And, you know, if you read the match report from different newspapers, they can say totally, totally different things because there's no, there's no truth there. Wow. There's no truth in football. There is truth in mathematics. Uh, we can't yeah, get there yet. Brilliant. Though. But the, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I said Bertrand Russell would say, well, actually, there wasn't enough truth. I turned to philosophy <laughs> instead. Oh, balls. The, um, but that, because the only reason I know anything about football is the bloke who runs the coffee bar at the uh, station, the railway station, Everyone who goes in there goes, uh, oh, no, yeah, yeah but it was really, he was playing really well, wasn't he? And I told him very well, and I said, awfully sorry that I won't be very good at conversation because uh, I don't know anything about So all I do is, like, today I went, and I went, well, my son's very happy for Arsenal. That's my seven-year-old. So he keeps me up to date, and I go, oh, Leicester's nice for them, isn't it? Because Leicester <laughs> doesn't always have the best of everything. I mean, I like Leicester a lot. It's got a National Space Centre. It's the birthplace of Colin Wilson and Joe Orton. But every now and again, they're feeling a little bit down. But it really G's them up when they do well. <laughs> so that's the football news. And uh, But mathematics, we need to get onto mathematics because though Josie doesn't know very much about football, she has recently done an A-level in mathematics. I feel like this is squandering having you in the room, having me talking about my stupid scrabblings around. Like, I would much rather... Talk about your books and like. Well, that's what I was. I was hoping I was just throwing it over <laughs> like... to you to ask me a question. The last thing I want to have you yet again mangling the work of Euclid. Oh, I couldn't get as far You've as Euclid. Always Do you know the thing that really excited me? You have got your A level in maths. I have got it? an A level now, and the thing that really excited me was the final module was where things just started to like open up a bit, and I was suddenly like just just going from two dimensional to three dimensional coordinates. That, and then the whole when you do like. Pythagoras' theorem and then you actually it's not just about the hypotenuse it's about like loads of those and you can find out things using more and more and that's when I was like oh this is good and then they were like you're done now bye and I was like it's like a kind of old fashioned kind of cliffhanger it makes you want to do the next one yeah (laughs) I've, I've been thinking about what to do but I think it's it's really making me appreciate that it doesn't come naturally to me because I'm somebody that like with the sort of thing we do it's totally fine to be slapdash and to Mm. be impatient and to sort of be like I've got the general just shut up you know whereas I feel with a lot of things like this it's like you make errors and it affects what you're doing to the extent that you can't do it anymore (laughs) and I was like that's not fair you know that I vaguely got it I just did it all wrong but yeah I I found it a real thrill and really exciting when did you know that that for you mathematics was through yes that's what I should have asked um I will translate Josie's questions. Thank you. I always liked maths because when I was younger, I was quite good at it, and you tend to like just what you're quite good at. Mm. And also, um, this might sound totally random, but my mum is Hungarian. She was born in Hungary. And the Hungarians have produced more great mathematicians probably for the last 150 years than any other country per capita and still do. I don't know. But one reason why they carry on doing so is because it's part of the kind of national identity. It's kind of cool being mm. Hungarian. To like, and quite often, you know, the expert on Brazilian football, I'm asked, why are the Brazilians so good at football? It's not so different to why the Hungarians are so good at maths. So if your national identity kind of embraces being good at something, whether football or maths, that makes you feel proud. And definitely when I was six, seven years old, starting to be good at it, maths not a particularly cool thing to be good at. The fact that I had this kind of Hungarian heritage, I, I was like, no, it's cool. It's part of who I am. I'm kind of destined to be quite good at maths. So I quite enjoyed it. But, but the, for the first time I started to think, wow, this is exciting and creative, was probably Pythagoras' theorem. But I think I learned it well before A-level. I was busy with other stuff. <laughs> no, I knew that. No, but I, I know the hypotenuse, like, 
the that bit, but yeah. it was when they started going. If you're doing it in three-dimensional coordinates, oh, yeah. you have X, Y, and Z. And, Z, yeah, you can and you that. add all of them. Yeah, and then I was like, I'm sorry, yeah. what? This yeah, is about yeah. triangles. And they were like, mate, it's not about triangles. Yeah. Do you think the English... Because oh, I think this is odd to think that the English, you know, were, were once described as a nation of grocers, which would think we could do mathematics, but might merely mean that we rip people off of the, over the price of a Swede. So can't spell. This is, <laughs> yeah. Punctuation. The, so what is, why, why do you think... Because I, I think in England, mathematics is not uh, in, in broadly culturally revered. No. I think, you know, the, what you're just describing about Hungary, I think it almost seems to fit in with philosophy, something slightly frowned on, a, a, a skill, a nerdish skill that people somehow pretend is nothing to do with the real world. Yeah, separated from... Yeah, I don't know, because in France, for example, they love maths, but they always love the kind of abstract thinking and the republic and the ideals and the revolution. Um, I think one... The sort of hugest irony about UK and math is that we have, among our own, one of the greatest mathematicians ever, Isaac Newton, who's better known as a physicist. So it's like the mathematicians can't... You know, if we had... You know, Euler or Gauss or Pythagoras, then we could, re- you know, there could be a Pythagoras Museum or Pythagoras Day, and it would definitely be about mathematics. But anything to do with Newton, he's sort of more famous for his physics rather than inventing calculus and you know, binomials. Too successful like for our own good. But then and Maynard got... Keynes found his box of alchemy, didn't he? That's another lovely thing. What? It was Maynard Keynes, wasn't it? Who uh, basically an auction. I think it was Maynard Keynes, but uh, listeners, please do correct us. Uh, and he bought this box of stuff and found out this was the time where now he's quite well known that, that Newton, he was do- he had brilliant mind, but yeah. went, I will squander most of it, though, on turning this into gold. <laughs> gold dash and I didn't even have sex, so I was too busy trying to turn these things into gold. Yeah. And it was, I think so that was only found out, apparently, in the 20th century, really, that that was a lot of the work he'd done. But that's like in the 19th century when people were trying really hard to kind of be grown up and serious about science and to be kind of like renaissance men and they were like right yes i totally understand biology is important i totally understand like uh, geology is important also phrenology really important that's that's how serious (laughs) a science got to get homeopathy you know like the idea that lots of things would be on an even footage that fitting that did not deserve to be so do you, with your... <laughs> That's the end of that. That was good, though. There's nothing wrong with that. You sounded like somewhere between Simon Sharma and Mary Beard. <laughs> the, uh, um, but I wonder, you know, Russell gave up math after, admittedly, what, 10 years he was doing Principia Mathematica? Yeah. With, uh, it was... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and that's... Was it? No. No, it wasn't. Double barrel name. And I yes. can't remember. I've bloody forgotten his name as well. Whitehead, not Rutherford. That's it, right. Uh, uh, A.N. Whitehead, right. So they they spent 10 years on that, a book which they then had to pay most of the thing to get published. And I think in his life, Bertrand Russell said he'd met about four people who'd actually read it. And then he'd get... Although the one person who had read it was Girdle. (laughs) So yeah, fair. and so then, and then well. where did he end up? It was like, oh, you were who wrong here, it. here, yeah, and here. Yeah. <laughs> and, but that it's so beautiful. It's like you're just a little ant. And that's all you're going to be, mate. But you can see how that annoying that because Russell said that in his life he kept going. Tell you what, Russell, I've come up with a little idea for Mastin. Went, it's in the book. No one's read the book, have they? Well, what about that's in the book as well? And <laughs> that's the old-fashioned equivalent of well, I think if you read the article, I wrote the article. You <laughs> seen that? <laughs> the uh, so what? For you, has kept you with mathematics. No, for for Russell, there was a point where his whole life was spent trying to find this. What he hoped, well, it would be fair to say, a certainty, and something that was that there, there was no debate 
on it. This is a definite. And well, then we're very different. He was a you know serious mathematician who had these things. You know, he had the mind that he could push forward science. I was quite good at maths, but, you know, I don't, I've got a degree in it, but I don't have a, a doctorate or anything. Um, but then I spent 20 years as a journalist, and that was the Brazil thing, the foreign correspondent. So what I have is, I, when I came back to maths, was this ability to do journalism and to travel the world and to find things out and to turn it into interesting stories. So I have kind of gone back to maths as a sort of an older person without the need to pass exams. So if you were to show me some of your A-level questions, I might not be able to answer them. Because we'd be in the I, same boat, though. We really would. <laughs> but I've sort of managed to go back and read it all just for the purposes of, of finding the amazing stories yeah. and finding... Celebrating the culture of it. Yeah, and, and the magic of it. And one thing that definitely annoyed me when I was a child is that we, you had the sciences and then you had the creative subjects. And mm. being in the sciences, I was always like, hang on, this is so much more creative because I could do a bit of the writing also. But I was, you know, and the idea of being able to write, you know, 100,000 words celebrating the creativity of mathematical and abstract thinking, I mean, that's sort of what I find quite exciting. How do you get? I mean, I totally agree that that two cultures thing. I think is just it, it, you feel it was a, a defence made up by poets who then got a bit like sometimes there's certain areas of philosophy which are always trying to damn science. In yeah, and ways it's like and, and you're still it. talking about the brain, guys. Yeah, sort of going, you still need philosophy. We do still need philosophy. We're not saying get rid of philosophy, but you don't therefore have to say Darwin was wrong because I've deliberately misunderstood a word and written a book about it. You didn't need to do that. You do some brilliant philosophy instead. What, what, what I did an A level. I did an A level in philosophy, guys. So I, I can take over. Here. Bloody hell, you and your A-level no, today. This is school, like we've actually met for the first time at the Student Union Bar. <laughs> what do you do for A-level? On my gap year. Oh, no, I didn't take a gap year. I am not from that class. I um, uh, I was thinking about how we did a whole module on philosophy of mind and the whole way through we'd be like, are there not scientific things that we actually do know about the brain? And they'd be like, don't worry about that. We're just talking about it. And it would be so frustrating because it just feels willful to separate. And it's the same with, like, the idea that trying to push forward science isn't creative when it's literally you need to leap into the unknown and solve new problems. Like, that's literally what being creative is. It's so frustrating. Do you think it's they creepy. should change it? I mean, that's what I, I was talking about. This come over some event that's recently where that you should have... When you say you're, you're English degree, why wouldn't you also read some of the great journals or some of the great science writing that is very beautiful and sometimes yeah. very florid? And at the same time, if you are studying an area of science, why not also have a module which talks about the way that, whether it be you know Robert Heinlein, who we were talking about earlier, or H.G. Wells, how they took scientific ideas and put it into culture as well. So, I mean, there's a very simple way where you don't have to take that many hours of anyone's week out from their favourite subject yeah. and just go, and this is where it exists in another world. Wasn't that what general studies was supposed to be? Well, yeah, but then general studies just became a nothing, didn't it? Yeah, didn't yeah. It, become, it became neither one, that which is The just easiest go, thing to do to get an A-level. But it should be part yeah, of... The th it should be part of, whether it's, you know, uh, theoretical physics or whatever. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons, I think, is that... If you're having an education system that's based around exams, you have to clearly define what is in that subject. So inevitably, the subjects that we learn, this is this the subject and this is not this subject. But actually, when you come to telling stories, actually being interesting and the way things actually happened in real life, there's, no, there's nothing that stops being mathematics and now it's physics or stops being mathematics and there's now philosophy. It's all the same thing. I mean, the philosophers and the mathematicians, there was, there was the, the word was the same, you know. Yeah. Was, was there a point, was there a story in particular? You, you, the first one is um, Alex's Adventures in Numberland, isn't it? Yeah. And was there a story that was the starting point where you thought, this is such a great story and this is so illuminating? 
and I want this to be shared. I want this to be... Well, I can remember, um, you know, going out with girls... And that sounds like I don't ever go out with girls. And they would say, oh, so you did maths? Because they were never the maths girls because the girls did really study maths. And they say, well, tell me something interesting. And I would say, okay, there are two different types. Well, there are at least two different types of infinity. Thinking, And they would be like, oh, yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make it my mission to actually write that in a way that is going to interest all girls. these kind of ghosts of girlfriends past so that they can't just go, yeah. So... <laughs> The, the, the very last chapter of my book is, of that first one, is quite hard. You'd only learn it, say, first, second year of university about different types of infinity. But in a sense, the mission was to get people comfortable enough to be able to engage with those ideas because they're mind-blowing ideas and I think accessible to pretty much anyone um, who, who's willing to put in a bit of reading. This reminds me a little but bit. When, when you said, uh, you opened that magazine, we'll get there. But the, I want um, to show you because it reminds me of that. This, well, the minute went, oh yeah. What you meant was they entirely disinterested brushing aside because when I, the first time, I mean, you know about this, we've talked yeah. about this before, that when you're told there's more than one infinity and they, you hear about Hilbert's Hotel, yeah. it's really bloody annoying, right? For, for, you know, arts graduates who always, don't worry about infinity, infinity is not a number. And then suddenly someone says, oh, there's a lot of different kinds of infinity. And then we go, well, we've been misled. We've been misled for years. You know, gravity being a force, uh. and then I uh, just end up doing the thing about general relativity. Turns out that was a whole bloody sham of education. More than one kind of infinity. It's so counterinstinctual to what we've been taught. Well, counterintuition is the you know catnip to storytelling because it means people are, you know people want to know why, and they're not actually learning that what they knew before was incorrect. It's just like you know you're going from two dimensions to three dimensions. So he's probably an inappropriate metaphor because you just that's the first level, and then you're using that to build on it. So yeah. do you have as it? Oh, sorry, you've no, got an advert thinking... that uh, this is. Should we just say I've... that uh, today's reading comes from <laughs> Doctor Graves, a Charlton classic. Graves is the name. Dr. M.T. Graves. I've something of a reputation as a ghostbuster. The reason I... These are some comics that comics I bought that, for Robin because I'm a good friend. Well, I'm a fine friend. I'm not a great friend, but I try uh, my hardest. Other uh, in this series of comics uh, bought for me while Josie was in America are Adventures into the Unknown, no, 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 Bad Luck Buggy and Other Thrillers, 12 cents, and Want a Hair-Raising Experience, Ride Up to the 13th Floor, Black Magic, Express Alligator, uh, Alligator? Alligator, an alligator, I it's think, would be an alligator that was a little bit lift. soft. <laughs> the, uh... Or that takes you up to different floors. Yeah, yeah. that would be... get in his belly. <laughs> I am. Um... Well, come on, Captain Hook, why are you always taking the stairs? <laughs> I was reminded of this because what I like about these comics, aside from the fact that there's this incredible schlock mystery horror, is they're full of these adverts that say things like, this can be you, fantastic new muscle building method, packs three inches on your arms fast. And then this one's like, even if you've always been skinny, you can gain five, 10, 15 pounds without dangerous drugs, men, an impressive manly body. And I was just thinking of like you writing about infinity like explain <laughs> infinity to hot girls hot girls will understand the two different kinds of that would infinity be a lovely advert. in the middle of a comic book it's quite funny that when you start reading this magazine it's always like are you skinny this can make you bigger and then quite quickly it's are you, are you too big yeah. <laughs> this can make you thinner <laughs> <laughs> we meant we meant a different kind of big my favorite is uh make money and friends in meat packing so um 
It's a genuine one from Confidential Magazine. Money and friends. In meatpacking. So when you're writing about mathematics, Mm -hmm. what are... Are you now... Is the journalist you good enough to go, oh, I realise now that I've gone off too far and that for my audience, my intended audience, where I'm wooing them into mathematics, this will then confound them too much and the book is put down? Or do you have people who kind of go, oh, actually, I think you've uh, gone a little bit too far with your maths? What I try and do, uh, writing maths is, I find it really difficult because either you go too fast and you lose people or you go too slow and the people who like it get bored. So, you know, I have dozens and dozens of drafts and what you need to do is that you need to just tell a story without thinking about the maths and people want to carry on reading for the story. So if you are, you know the maths, you're just enjoying the story and like maybe you put sort of anecdotes and side things about history and philosophy and that way it's, it's you can't go very fast, but for those people who want it faster, there's actually like enough stuff there. And the way that I got around of doing that is by um, actually travelling to places and meeting people and not the total kind of, New Yorker style, which is, I met someone and he was wearing jeans and a cardigan. <laughs> you know, like, so what? But, for instance, when I did the chapter on, so Zero comes from India, I thought, well, let's go to India to, to do it. I could have said, like most of the kind of books on math, they say, you know, Zero comes from India. Much more interesting to say, you know, I went into the temple of the Shankaracharya of Puri, the guy wearing his robes, you know, mangoes all over the place, da, 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 and he said, Zero was invented here. And then... Even if you knew that, you're kind of thinking, well, why is he in India? Yeah. And it's, so hang it's on, so tricks. If someone's wearing <laughs> robes with mangoes, you'll mention what they're wearing. But if they're wearing jeans and a cardigan, you won't. Right, <laughs> this is where I've been going wrong. <laughs> no wonder no journalists write about me. Well, I am going to be I've... wearing mangoes and robes tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the wearing of the mangoes. It's the, the, the mangoes are the, are the gifts given. So, yeah, I know, but I'm going to wear them. <laughs> imagine, me, imagine me covered You're in right mangoes in a robe. Yeah. yeah. As he slid down the stairs on one of his clumsily placed mangoes. And then I suppose for you as well, it becomes a physical adventure as well as an intellectual Yeah, like a, ge- a geographical adventure. And it's, it's, it's easier to write because then when I was trying to work out how do you tell these stories? What's the link? It's otherwise going to be, you know, 12 totally disjointed stories. You've got to put yourself in it a little bit. So mm. it's my adventures. And you can say, well, I learned that back then. And what do I want to know to go there? Yeah. So let's have your latest book, oh, yeah, which so is this... a very different kind of book. Is uh, it about patterns in nature? Snowflake, Please really tell me Seashell it's about Star, in which is lovely. I, have, I, have, uh, I haven't coloured mine in yet. I'm saving <gasps> oh, that for hello. Christmas. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, so this is my third maths book and I did it in collaboration with a mathematical artist called Edmund Harris who's we're talking about Leicester yes we were football Mm. Leicester who um, was at the University of Leicester but now is at the University of Arkansas and he does these these great images and we collaborated it together and the idea is well firstly I saw the fact that Colouring books sell loads and I thought well I'll go and do some of that Was that on the back of things like the colouring in the brain book? Have you seen that? I haven't. This is a lovely idea. This is from quite a while ago and certainly doesn't in any way get the way of your market. But uh, you, uh, there's loads of <laughs> different images of the brain too. with uh, you know, d- highlighting different ways that the brain's put together, highlighting different organs, having a look at you know, from different kind of perspectives of the brain. And each time you kind of colour in these different anat- anatomical drawings. And uh, the act of colouring you know, helps you. And they've d- they did an anatomy book as well. But the, the brain one is just brilliant because it's just you're constantly colouring in different pictures of the brain, but each one's telling you a different thing about the hippocampus and the like. 
That sounds great. Um, not as good as your brilliant book as your, I guess, so, not them. It was about six months ago. Why have these had to change? This is a proof. <laughs> but I don't know. Oh. I've given you the copy with the errata in where I've put the um, um, bit pencil marks where there have been a few minor mistakes. But what hopefully it will be at its second printing. What type listeners. of numbers are these? Why are these? Okay, oh, so, hang on so a minute. This... That's not the proof copy. He's found minor mistakes. Oh, my. Cut this bit. Cut this bit. This oh, is, my this God. is oh, brilliant. My God. And it's almost like you're a plant because I was actually going to talk about this very image. Because I'm a great broadcaster. So about six months ago when I was... Um, realising that colouring books were selling really well, I was having a chat with a friend of mine, a mathematician, on Skype, and I noticed behind him he had an Ulam spiral painted on his wall. Now, do you know what an Ulam spiral no. is? So Ulam spiral is Stanislav Ulam, um, friends with Richard Feynman, obviously from the Manhattan Project, etc. He's a Polish-American uh, mathematician. He was completely bored in a lecture in 1964, and... So he started to doodle. It's always a good thing for mathematicians when they start to doodle. He had a kind of gridded notepaper and he started to spiral the numbers out. As you can see in this bit of paper here, say this one here, it's a grid. He starts at the beginning, one, two, three, four, five. He's like spiraling the numbers out. Mm -hmm. And then he decides to just cross off or kind of colour in, but really just cross off the prime numbers. Prime numbers, the numbers that are divided by. So that's one, so two, three, five, seven, not nine, eleven, etc. And the prime numbers is really where math begins because it's the most simple kind of pattern to see. And the, the, prime number. The, the weird thing about prime numbers is that, the, that they they don't appear in any kind of obvious pattern. And it's probably the thing that mathematicians collectively, more mathematicians over a longer amount of time, has tried to find the patterns to and very little is known. And he just discovered by doodling in this lecture that the prime numbers all went you do a grid of spiral number, number spiraling out, all tend to sit on the same diagonals. So just like amazing. And um, this is quite a well-known mathematical image, and I've seen it in loads of books. But to see it on my friend's wall, painted, all of a sudden I thought, that is like a piece of art. And so I had this idea, oh, math is art, colouring books. Why don't I look and see if there are enough other images that would be beautiful as, you know, people say math is beautiful, but that's kind of abstract reasons that are aesthetically beautiful and so we found all these different images which we think which which we think are and just i know the listeners will have to google ulam spiral but if you this is an ulam spiral up to 40000 200 by 200 and you can see that the dots are the um you can see the pattern, pattern and you can see and so this is a kind of a, it's a wonderful you know if you want to say where are the mysteries of mathematics? Is there still th stuff to understand? No one can understand this pattern. No, no it's so it's simple to time. It's something, but 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 no one really knows why are so many of the primes all on the same diagonals. And the, the other thing here, which is interesting, is that if something's totally chaotic and total mess, yeah, what can you ever know about it? If something is really obvious, you know, like a checkerboard, it's just a bit boring. What's interesting is this kind of halfway between order and chaos, as if there's some kind of music behind the noise. And so I thought, well, that's a good kind of starter. And then I started to get sort of interested in the fact that, you know, we've got to talk about India, the Sri Yantra, which if anyone's, if you've ever been to yoga, you will see the Sri Yantra on the wall. It's the most famous mandala. And this is a kind of geometrically constructed image for the purposes of meditation. And so that kind of is also in the book because it's really of saying this book is a book to look at these amazing mathematical images and to kind of contemplate and meditate and think about them. 
if you want to know about them, I've got explanations of what they are at the back. But, you know, it's really just to look and see how the patterns work, because just by thinking about them and colouring them in, you'll get some kind of mathematical insight. That's why I love the act of colouring in. Yeah. Being so much part of actually an education. Once you it concentrate totally on why you might be... Oh, yeah, when you're a kid, there is so much of it. Because isn't, isn't it amazing when you do a doodle, you know, you do a doodle, you say, put the pin down and go like this, and it kind of looks like horrible. And then you start to shade one of the regions in and then think, OK, I'm only going to shade oh, something. Yeah, not there, and you think, I wonder if I can do the entire. And you can. And you get this amazing kind of sort of amorphous but beautifully patterned, checkered thing. And I think that I think that people are attracted to that. I was thinking a bit about, um, it reminded me a bit of, in the Sagrada Familia, the big uh, cathedral in Barcelona, Yeah, there's an exhibition about Gaudi and how he took his influences. And so much of it is natural patterns. And then you look at that and then you look at the structure and how regular the structures are and how you can kind of analyse their shapes. And it's all... Yeah, he was super into math. Maths, nature... And then you look at it and it doesn't look like you muscle know, nature. It looks incredible. How Gaudi did what one of his architectural kind of... People were doing it, but no one did it the way that he did it, using the catenary. So if you get a chain and you hang it like this, it, it makes a very, a very... It always makes the same pattern. It's called a catenary. If you were to make a freestanding arch, the very best shape is the opposite of the catenary when it's hanging... Because when something's hanging, all the forces are pulling along the line. And when you opposite it, put it, put it as an arch, all the forces are compressing. And this was Robert Hooke who realised this was the case. But what Gaudi did is that for some of his constructions, he would build these string models with all these chains and basically take a picture and then you turn it upside down and that becomes the model of the... Um, I've seen one of them. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's absolutely amazing to think that something's so simple. And the reason why that's attractive to Gaudi is that it's the pure mathematics. It's like the arch as as the perfect shape. Yeah. But they're also, I don't know, sea tubers are, yeah. are like that because they work perfectly for the environment they're in. And that's why the maths is like that. And so it does relate to nature and it relates to maths and it relates well, to it, art. It, it, totally it blows does. my mind. When you look through here, lots of people, when you say, what, what's the image that stands out? And, uh, and people say different things. And quite often people say, oh, that one there stands out. This is like the Nautilus shell. Mm. And because you think, well, what if you got a, something from, you know, biology or zoology in a book about maths? Well, that's because this is a mathematically constructed shape. You know, you, each cell grows at the same proportion. And if you do that, you get this amazing logarithmic spiral, which is both incredibly organic, but defined by a very simple rule. But also, maths isn't entirely divorced from the world because it's a way of understanding the way the like. It's funny that people would think, well, it's maths; it couldn't be to do with nature. And it's like, well, why do you think nature exists? Like, but they are how do you think human beings in yeah. the way they're taught so much, aren't yes, they? That yeah. they? The very act of sitting down with your uh, squared paper rather than your lined paper, which says you're in a different world now, and many of you will be born, <laughs> except for the truly wise ones. <laughs> the rest of you will shout in rooms. But that's why, like you were saying about could people be taught differently and like I'd, I've never been to a Steiner school but like when you hear about the way that they're like okay we're sort of 2000 BC we're all going to be learning everything 2000 see I'm not sure about Steiner schools because I just remember the friend of mine who had to leave the Steiner school after a bow and arrow accident <laughs> anyway the, uh, let's have a look at what the books you've got so, I don't know which, in which order you can show them at any order you want well, so this 
I'm going to be taking them and looking for Okay, well, so I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> the, 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 this is an old geometry one from the 19th century, um, redone by Tashin. This is Ooh. completely bonkers, brilliant, but totally unknown math so book. It should be a bestseller. The mystery the of font. the prime numbers. The font is practically Comic Sans. They really, really have done us a disservice. Weirdly enough, that's very similar to the way they sometimes do books about discordianism and stuff, where you actually go, you've over wackied it. It, It's true. It it looks... um, So, just just talk about it. So, there's a three-volume set. This is the first one, and it's the Secrets of Creation set, The Mystery of the Prime Numbers, done by Matthew Watkins. And... It's obviously kind of labour of love. I think it was more or less self-published at the beginning. It is brilliant, but completely bonkers. And it's really just about the prime numbers. And he invents these sort of... He's quite hippie-ish, and it's quite sort of... I don't know if he is from Glastonbury or lives in Glastonbury, but you imagine it's all that. But it's brilliant mathematics. And he has these like little wizards and these funny ideas. And it's witty. It's totally creative. Um, it should be a, it should be a massive bestseller. I only found out about it because I was in Amer- I was in a, a museum in America, and one of the people working at the museum said, "Oh, you're British. I've just read this British book, and I know you know I like to think that I know what's going on in the world of math writing and I, I most books, and I hadn't ever heard of it." Oh, it does sound. Chapter 13 is harmonic decomposition, breaking everything down into waves. The distribution, that's chapter 10, the curiously random looking arrangement of primes. But what does it. It's great. It just it it hooks me in terms of the. uh, The thing is, it's. If you were at a, well, he, if he'd gone to a proper publisher, they would have said, "We don't want any of this." The comic sans and the hippie drippy, like it's a bit, it's a bit hippie-ish in the kind of cliched nineteen seventies. But that's lovely. Yeah. Oh, Brian but, Cox but would love this bit. <laughs> Look around a library and consider how many books would remain relevant if they were to travel with you on a voyage into outer space. You see that almost everything on the shelves, apart from the maths, <laughs> physics, chemistry, and astronomy <laughs> sections, is concerned with the goings on on one particular little planet called Earth, and primarily with the affairs of one particular species called Homo sapiens. Yeah, Mathematics but... stands out in that it isn't limited in this way. And physics. No. I've got a present for Brian Cox now. <laughs> no. What they're failing to realise is that you're taking the book and you're a person. So all affairs. No, no, of the no. But he's not failing to realise that. What he's saying is, he's not dissing all the others. What I he's mean, saying is, once in outer space, you know, you you'll find that, that it, much it's lovely to remember the old home planet. Yeah, but you're yeah. still a human being, and it's still relevant. It would still be necessary to take something like Sometimes about the human heart. Sometimes I think you are the two cultures. The way you just attacked him just because he <laughs> I was likes only maths. Kidding, though, I thought just because he's a, a mathematician this and a hippie. This looks like a brilliant book. Thank it you. Is. And I like science and maths. But he gets so. It gets very conceptual and quite complicated, but in a very simple and completely wacky way. So this is the logarithmic spiral. He uses this sort of logarithmic spiral and he has his wizard. He's like got this um, special type of rope that he's extending. Um, and the rope, that's basically if you have a rope on the number line, which is one, 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 and you extend it, then you get two, four, eight. So it's a way of explaining multiplication by two by having a wizard pulling a rope. Oh, um, stuff a little bit similar to that in uh, Matt Parker's book as well about the uh, fun and games in the fourth dimension book. I've got ridiculously forgotten the name, but he, you know, again, that thing where do a thing, tie yeah. a knot or whatever it is, tie another one. What I love, though, is also thinking that Matthew is probably, he's in his shed and whoever he lives with is going, what are you doing in that shed making all that noise? I am doing mathematics. <laughs> I am dealing with primes. That is... This is really and it, it's, it's really, it, it's... It's so fresh because 
prime numbers, you know, every math writer has to have something about prime numbers. You mention what they are and you talk about them. And it's quite hard to do it interestingly or differently. And this is so off the wall, but it's totally great. It, to- it kind of gets it right. And I read that and thought, oh, my God, this is the oldest subject that I know. I've never seen it done so freshly. Now, we have, because we're running out of time, this beautiful Tashin, uh so Have you heard of this book of before? The... I don't think the first six. Oh, so some yes, we have so someone you, on that. Yeah. Euclid's Elements is like the first ever proper math book from 300 BC from Euclid, and then in the mid 19th century, this guy who it turns out um, he That's was beautiful. If, if, if you look at who who he was, it's Oliver Byrne. Um, just oh, he is purveyor of Her Majesty's settlements in the Falklands Islands. So obviously he was... Surveyor, a, I should say, surveyor. Purveyor. Oh, sorry, Otherwise, surveyor. if you say he's purveyor, you may well get a lot of trouble again from South America. I don't know which country <laughs> you do South American racism, don't you? <laughs> yes, surveyor of Her Majesty's settlements. See, I always have the dedication to the Right Honourable, the Earl Fitzwilliam, etc., etc., etc. I love that. Even in the dedication to go, and the three, etc. This work is dedicated by his uh, lordship's obedient and much obliged servant. Because some of the books you look at, you go back another couple hundred years, yeah. some of the philosophers as you go, my God, the first 20 pages is just saying thanks very much. The king, you're brilliant. The king, <laughs> hope you like my book of philosophy, the king. <laughs> so what he did is that he rewrote the most famous book in math, supposedly the book that's had more edition. Well, the only book that's had more editions than Euclid's Elements is the Bible. And he redrew it in colour. So it's all kind of colour-coordinated. And it looks like it could be kind of a, I don't know, 20th century children's book. But yes. actually it was, you know... On his boats surveying the Falklands, he would have come up with this idea. And as well as being really interesting, using colour to teach, it looks, I mean, that looks like Mondrian. And it was, you know, Mondrian wasn't even born. Um, And so thanks to Tashin, who as well as doing, you know, the Book of Big Bums and things like that, have do the Book of Big Maths ideas. And this is a really, really beautiful kind of replica copy that came out a couple of years ago. Um, of, I mean, this has got to be one of the most interesting, on a purely publishing point of view, most interesting books of the 19th century. It feels, it looks just kind of fascinating. Kind of a bit bonkers also. That is, that's really really lovely. Uh, Just looking at it as well, it's really delicious. I'm like, oh yeah, I like that one, (laughs) yep. Done that that in A-level, did that at night college. Oh, when I got to learn all the like, the way to do like sine and cosine and tangent and how to do areas and lengths with those guys. That was a whole new world. That was such a thrill. So that you can have any sort of geometric puzzle going on and you can be like, don't worry, I can find you the length and area of this shit, don't worry. And that <laughs> felt really practical and useful. Like anything going on, I'd be like, I can sort that out for you. And suddenly <laughs> thinking about that. Brilliant. We better get on to the... Fo- oh, sorry, no, you've got something else to say. Oh, I was just going to say that I think that that book, um, when it was published that because colour at that time, 1850s, was really difficult, I think the um, publishers went completely broke and completely bust. So it became a kind of collector's item, which is why you had to get this this replica. That's great. Yeah, so yet again, another mathematics book, much like the one we're talking about with A.M. Whitehead and Bertrand Russell. They didn't really (laughs) sell that one and uh, they had to pay for it themselves. So why did you go into maths? Well, because Pele didn't want volume two. Bloody idiot. That's all that cocaine. (laughs) Shut up. See, we, we have to put that in context, otherwise we get sued by Pele. Now, now, math- he's not going to sue himself. 
Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry, Pele. Anyway, <laughs> so um, your final book. The final book is probably the best book I've read this year. It's also a mathsy one, Genius at Play. It's a biography of John Conway. This very kind of playful um, Liverpudlian mathematician who's been at, was at Cambridge and then at Princeton. And he is maybe approaching 80 and still active. And Siobhan Roberts, who wrote this, spent almost a decade with him. And it's one of those books that is as much about the relationship between biographer and biography. And, you know, Conway is a brilliant but quite a tricky egomaniac, as she says literally in the first paragraph, who ended up proposing her hand in marriage. And there's all this slightly kind of bonkersness. Um, But it's, it's beautifully, beautifully written. And you really get to understand a little bit about what what happens when you are a kind of genius mathematician. And Conway is interesting because he is the mathematician who turned games and fun and playing into mathematics, um, kind of more than anyone else. So he wrote a book called I think it was Winning Ways for Mathematical Plays, which was the maths of basically some simple kind of board games and, and, th- and things like that. And The Game of Life was his invention, which is quite famous, the kind yeah, of yeah. automata. Surreal numbers are his um, thing. It, 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 it's a wonderful read. And it's quite hard often when you write about maths to actually find a, a narrative that's the same narrative from beginning to end. And one way to do that is to do a biography. But lots of the famous people have already had their biographies done, but he hasn't <laughs> until now. And it's really, it's really nicely done. Well, I notice it starts with a quote from Martin Gardner, who many people, including Simon Singh, would say, you know, one of the, again, there. Uh, you know, so lots of Martin is... Gardner's best stuff was a result of they were good friends. Conway would, would give him the mathematics. Yeah. Well, I like this bit. Your free sample is a fracturan, which I know nothing about. You probably do there. Only fracturan has these star qualities. Get, gets these functions really clean. The entire configuration of a fracturan machine at any instant is held a single integer. There are no messy tapes or other foreign concepts to be understood by the fledgling programmer. You've sold Fortran. See, it's, cause it's interesting because, again, as you all say, the social uh, abilities of some, like the, that wonderful book about um, Paul Erdish. Uh, yes, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, which is just, and you go, what people's partners must have thought, mathematicians' partners, yeah. when he turned up and knocked the door and said, is your mind open? They thought, oh, God, this is going to be a long weekend, isn't it? Ha, He's going to end up stabbing the fruit course. juice cart and open again because he doesn't know how to open it. Oh. But Erdish was definitely kind of on the autistic spectrum. And, but Conway, even though he is likes to cultivate a certain eccentricity. He's a complete ladies' man. You know, five marriages, supposedly... Five marriages, to me, does not suggest that he's a good at functional relationships. No, he said he's a ladies' man. No, 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 yeah, but he's... So there are lots of stories, you know, the legend has it that basically he's he's a seducer. He's a seducer, and that he seduces everyone in his path. He's like, I'll tell you about two different types of infinity, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) It worked for him. (laughs) This guy and this guy. (laughs) This is... uh, That's the end of this episode, our special football and math special. So, um, this is... I'd also wanted... I just want to quickly ask if you have any like books that you think really are like classic fun books about maths that if nobody's if somebody's read nothing about maths that you would recommend if you've read nothing about maths i think the mystery of the prime numbers is this one we talked about is hilarious and brilliant and simple um you might want i i think 
I would say Uncle Petros and the Goldback Conjecture. So that is a novel, it's a very slim novel, by Apostolos Doxiadis, who did the Logic Comics, which is the, yeah. uh, oh, which yeah. is not a brilliant thing, but but Bertrand Russell as a kind of, you know, the, the graphic novel. Um, so what he is a genius doing to both of those books, I would suggest both of those books, were the Honourable Petros and the Goldback Conjecture, it's the best kind of non-fiction book. So he needs to construct this really good story. He's actually a novelist, but actually the meat of what he's dealing with is the Goldback Conjecture, which hasn't been solved, and it's about his uncle, or the, or the narrator's uncle, who says he's solved it, and then to, uh, the narrator trying to find out what it is has to actually do a little bit of maths. But because it's a great novel, you end up really wanting to know what happens, and you learn loads of... It's easier to talk about the wonder of mathematics rather than just saying, oh, I think this is amazing. You know, of course, you're writing about it, but if you could get other characters within the book to say it and be excited, the yeah. characters that you believe in. So that, that I would say that is a great book, short book, Ankle Petros and the Goldback Contraction. Not a very good title, but a um, really great book. And Alex's Adventures in Numberland. Yeah, Alex Through the Looking Glass and Snowflake Seashell Star. If you're in America. All excellent. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, isn't it called... He's Pattinson. looking at Euclid was the first, the, the Alex's Adventures in Numberland, isn't it? In, yeah, in so all my books, he annoyingly... He's looking at Euclid, that's incredible! It's, it's a New Yorker cartoon, isn't it, originally? Where does that come from originally? We That was on the list yes, of Infinite yes, Monkey Cage yeah. titles until we realised where it had come from. Oh, my God. That, guys, that is one of the best puns I've heard in years. It's a great pun, yeah. It's a good pun, yeah. The, uh, right, uh, so um, thank, thank you very you. much, um, Alex Buss. Thank you very much, Josie Long. My absolute thank pleasure. Thank you very much, uh, Trent Burton, for uh, producing all these things with us. And thank you very much to today's list of uh, people who've uh, pledged uh, some money to keep this going. We, thank we you are so still much. not quite at the target, but we have enough to keep on going, which is good. We'd like to get a studio with a little bit of air conditioning. Many of us are very poorly now. So, all episodes, by the way, and reading lists are available at cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. So, thank you very much for helping us out. Dave Schofield. Uninvited Cat, Christopher Binney, Julie Kay, David Williams, Catherine Busby, Rich Kay, Podlerum Trevelyan, Dave Hall, Ben Ewart Dean, Nikki Coolbeck, KP, hello KP, uh, John Smith, Cody Conard, Sam Pickford, Samantha Davis, John O'Davis, Nick Hurley, Megan Lucas, John Boyce, Mark Bowers, Stephen Crawford, thank you. Tiny Town, I don't know what that is, but that's a great name for something. Claire McCowland, Jamie Britton, my friend. Hi, Jamie, thank you. Kath uh, Tutor, Roger Langridge, Charles Dundas, Mike Brinton, Thomas Picard, Stevie D. Sill, Mark Stewart Stanley, Ray, Mark Weavers, Kate Hurley, Christopher, Rachel Coopy and Max Alexander. Thank you so much for supporting us. It means the world to us. And our final advert for Dr Graves is good news for those who believe. Here are over 100 ready-to-use mystic chants for money, power and love. <laughs> Island Park Books. Oh, that reminds Department me. Department A709. There's an absolutely brilliant documentary that I think we used on Shortcuts, but it might be This American Life, I can't remember what yeah. it is, um, about a man tracking down a man who wrote one of those pamphlets about psychic messaging. Oh, cool. And, yeah. And in it, he wrote a chapter at the end that was basically a little socialist manifesto. And he managed to kind of get that in. Anyway, have well, a look for it. I'll tell you what, we'll talk about more of it when we finish recording this. Bye-bye. Right.